Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Sarah Eisen at uh, different locations. Kramer has the morning off. Big bounce here as the market digests this anecdotal report on Gilead's remdesivir, White House guidelines on reopening business, Boeing's return to work, and really looking past uh, China's uh, first GDP contraction in at least 40 years, and oil below 18 is something to watch, David. But uh, clearly that report out of Stat News uh, reflects just how much hope there is, whether it's remdesivir or something else, uh, for, for an effective, effective treatment going into the fall. It, yeah, it, it, it does, Carl. It may also reflect what is relatively thin trading, having spoken to a number of people this morning who sort of are wondering in terms of whether or not you can have big moves in the market with uh, just a billion dollars of futures being bought, which may seem like a lot, but really is not. Uh, because uh, you know, you've got a lot of fund managers who tightened risk. They took down their net exposure, but perhaps they didn't sell quite as much. Um, and it's, so it's unclear how much buying power is actually needed to move the market in a significant way. That said, remdesivir itself Certainly very important, and we're all very hopeful that it is going to actually have an impact on the outcome of the disease for those who get very sick and end up in the hospital. But it is not going to be what we call a chain terminator. It is not something that is going to stop the transmission of the virus, because remember, it is an infused medicine in the hospital at this point. It's not clear whether it would work earlier uh, in the disease, whether it would have the same impact that we hope we will eventually get from oral antivirals that could be taken by people who are at home who get the first symptoms of COVID-19. That is much more important because that would be a chain terminator. That would have an impact on the economic impact of the disease. This, Sarah, impacts the outcome Mm-hmm. But it's not going to stop people yep. from changing their behavior because you, you don't want to end up in the hospital regardless. Right. No, this is administered through an IV, as you said, from, for really critical patients. And, and that's why we're watching all the clinical trials of some of the oral drugs as well. We need a pill, as you say, that you can take at home to keep you out of the hospital in the first place. But it is worth noting the encouraging results from Gilead and from that stat news uh, big scoop. So 113 out of 125 patients in critical care in Chicago had severe disease. They were all treated with remdesivir. Two died. And the pros are most of them uh, recovered after that. And, and many were discharged at six days, a few at 10 days. So, so that obviously is the good news. It does help the chances for remdesivir being the first FDA drug that is approved, though there's not the statistical evidence that you would get in a control group. And that's why we're still calling it anecdotal to really prove that you know, that, 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 that this would have happened with or without the drug, that this happened because of the drug. So, you know, taken with a grain of salt, but obviously very helpful. And I think it also, guys, shows that, you know, the market moves. People spent you know, much of the week wondering, why is the market continuing to be so resilient and continuing to climb when 
Another more than 5 million people filed for unemployment claims. When the economic data has gone from bad to god-awful numbers that we've never seen before, a record decline in retail sales, industrial production, New York manufacturing, we all got this week. Why is the market hanging in there? Well, the health data and, and these trial results and these news and the flattening of the infection curve and the fewer hospitalizations in hotspots like New York, that's what's moving the market. And whether that dynamic continues or not, that is what leads investors to look over to the other side. That, I would say, David and Carl, uh, and a whole lot of stimulus, both from the fiscal authorities and from the Federal Reserve, which continue to stabilize the all-important credit markets and, and the overall bond market, the muni market. Uh, though I would say not all the optimism in the equity market this morning, Carl, is being reflected in the bond market. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Ten-year yields uh, have come down 14 basis points in three days and this morning uh, barely up. So there is some disparity between the equity response and the bond market response today. Sarah, to your point, I love Tom Lee's note this morning. Never would I have imagined 5.2 million jobless claims would lead to an uptape yesterday. Uh, the market narrative seems completely out of sync with what we know lays ahead uh, but it does suggest that the recovery is much stronger, is going to be much stronger than people expect. And David, from a trading perspective, that's why you do have names like Amazon and Netflix and Peloton uh, down on the pre-market, because there's going to be this knee-jerk response to unwind the stay-at-home basket that has been the source of strength and one reason the triple Qs are still up for the year. Yeah, that has been right. This new kind of, we call it almost nifty 50. Of course, Microsoft also a big beneficiary of this recent rally as well, as you point out, perhaps some of those names a bit lower, though the secular growth names continue to be the real focus in terms of any buying over time, it would seem, uh, Carl. I, you know, I don't have a conversation that doesn't begin or end with um, I don't understand the stock market uh, because you'll spend a lot of time yeah. talking to people who are running businesses or focused on analyzing them. And they don't seem to think things are going to be good for quite some time. There is still a great deal of question in terms of our recovery, getting back to work, how, how stuttered that will be, uh, how difficult that will be when we will really return to behaviors that were more uh, akin to what we saw prior to the spread of this disease around our country. Um, and yet people throw their hands up, Sarah, and say, yeah, and you mentioned this. You know, I don't really yeah. fully understand the stock market at this point. Um, but you know what that reminds me of? Maybe it's just of? the Fed. What? It reminds me of when we were in this with China. Remember in the beginning of the year and, and, the chi and China basically got locked off from the rest of the world? And yes, the Chinese market was closed for the Lunar New Year, but then it reopened. It had a sharp fall. And, and then it had this remarkable resilience where it actually climbed up to multi-month highs. And people were saying, well, it must be the Chinese buying. It, it must be the Chinese buying. Uh, but, you know, other people were looking at it and saying they're, they're flattening their curve. They are significantly fighting this virus, and, and they are looking out to the other end. And I'm not sure China's the best corollary, as there are continued questions about the accuracy of the data, with Wuhan overnight uh, adding the number of deaths by 50 percent, saying that those were not counted. Yeah. But I will say, you do believe companies like Starbucks, like Nike, like L'Oreal overnight today, like P&G, which is talking about China right now, talking about a recovery there. After the economy was shut down and we got those GDP figures, 6.8 percent decline was even worse than what was expected in the first contraction for China in decades. And yet there's continued talk of recovery there, David. And, and that, 
I wonder if the market is looking through to make some sort of comparison to what could happen here if we get enough treatment and enough flattening of curves to get people back out into the economy again. Not, not saying that, the, that there's necessarily a V baked in, but I do remember that action in China and it was optimistic. Yeah, uh, well, you, you may be right, Sarah, because there's gotta be some explanation. Now, now again, it does appear that you, it doesn't take a great deal of buying power in this market to move things higher, at least initially, but we are looking for a significant up open. As we said at the open of the broadcast, in part of our broadcast, in part because of uh, what seemed to be uh, positive reactions to uh, the Gilead drug remdesivir, which is being used in acutely ill patients in the hospital. Let's get to Meg Terrell and get more on that part of the story. Meg. Hi, David. Well, I think you couched it well there. These are not clinical trial data. These are not results from a clinical trial. This is a glimpse into what one hospital said they were seeing in part of a clinical trial that they're participating of Gilead's drug remdesivir. This is a report, of course, from Stat News, which focuses on medical news. Uh, they got a video from the University of Chicago, uh, which was communicating to its faculty members what they were seeing in this clinical trial. Now, they enrolled 125 patients, 113 of whom uh, were severe, and what they said was they were seeing rapid recoveries in fever and respiratory symptoms, um, seeing that nearly all of the patients were discharged in less than a week, uh, and they observed two deaths uh, among those patients that they talked about. Now, we need to give the caveats that this is not controlled clinical trial data, and there is a lot of skepticism around how much you can really take away from what is uh, sort of observational. Uh, we are waiting for these trials from both Gilead and the NIH, the first uh, results of which we should see later this month from Gilead's trial in severe patients. And that NIH trial is a double-blind placebo-controlled trial, really the gold standard uh, of efficacy data that is often needed before approval of a drug. Uh, the Wall Street reactions coming in this morning among biotech analysts whose bread and butter it is to evaluate data really mixed. Citi calling it a ray of hope, JP Morgan saying directionally positive, Leering noting, of course, reminding us this is anecdotal, and Baird, Brian Scorney, who never uh, minces words, calls this exuberance out of control on remdesivir. So guys, we're really only going to have answers as we see these clinical trial data come out, but clearly a lot of people hoping that this means we have a drug that works. David? Yeah, Meg, I was making the point earlier, as important as this is, it's not a chain terminator. It's not something taken earlier in the cycle of the of the uh, of the virus that will keep people home and make sure they don't end up in the hospital and make sure that they are cured quickly. Um, or is there a possibility that this could be used in that fashion? Right now, I know it's infused in the hospital, but is there a possibility if it's successful that they will try to use it and change the formulation and use it earlier in the progression? Well, because of what you mentioned that it's an IV drug, right now it is used in the hospital setting. And that, of course, is the way drug development usually works. You're testing things in the most severe uh, patients first, and then you kind of move backwards um, to less severe courses of the disease. Gilead is evaluating other ways of administering the drug, but that's going to take some time. What we might see before that is efforts from other companies and researchers into small molecule drugs that can be given as pills. That is still months away at least, but we know companies like Pfizer are searching for antiviral drugs. Uh, we know a very prominent HIV researcher, uh, David Lowe at uh, Columbia, sorry, David Ho at Columbia, uh, is also looking into this. So we could see those come from other places. 
Meg, the other question in talking to medical sources about this drug is we don't know the side effects because we don't have any you know, official clinical trials or specific data. Do you hear anything anecdotally, anecdotally about the side effects being so severe that it might not be able to be used as widespread as hoped? Um, certainly there are concerns about the safety uh, of this drug. Um, they have tested it, you know, in Ebola as well. So some of the side effects are known. Um, people do look for effects on kidney um, toxicity and also liver toxicity. Um, and that will need to be better understood in the course of clinical trials to understand how widely uh, this could be administered. But um, drugs are not benign. So it is really important to remember that there could be a dangers to using them widely as well. All right, Meg, uh, we're going to watch it closely, something we're going to talk about uh, all day, our Meg Terrell on this uh, Gilead news regarding remdesivir. We'll take a quick break here. A lot of news to get to. We'll get to Proctor, of course, uh, interesting uh, dynamics regarding the consumer there in health care and home care as well. Uh, Goldman, of course, with uh, their uh, note on Apple as they go to sell and a target of 233. We're back in a minute. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Futures pointing sharply higher with the Dow up 650 in the early action. Boeing is helping out, announcing it will resume commercial airplane production in Washington state next week. The stock up this morning on the news, erasing a lot of its losses that we had so far this week. Phil LeBeau in Chicago with the latest. Phil. And Sarah, remember those losses were because of a number of questions that have been really hanging over this company over the last week and a half, particularly Wall Street wondering, look, when are you going to have a number of things taken care of, including a resumption of production? Well, that that has been taken off the table with this announcement that it will begin a staggered resumption of commercial airplane production in the Seattle area starting on Monday, ramping up throughout the week. Remember, this is only on wide bodies. They still are not doing work on the 737 MAX. That remains grounded, and they haven't really woken up that assembly line to the degree that they will eventually have to. So as you take a look at Boeing, you've got this issue that has been answered, and that's why the stock is moving higher. Three other questions that are out there that we may get some some clues to over the next week, week and a half, two weeks. One of them, what happens with the production level and staffing levels? Does Boeing have to bring down its wide-body production rate? Does it have to cut uh, cut staffing for the company by as much as 10% as, as many people believe they ultimately will? Also, what happens with the Treasury loans as well as accessing loans in the private market? A lot of that decision depends on what the terms are in terms of what Treasury says. If you're going to be borrowing money from us, here's what specifically is attached to that. And then finally, the 737 MAX certification. Boeing continues to maintain that it expects to have the plane ungrounded by mid-year. All of those are the issues that people are focused on right now. Remember, the backlog tops about 5,000 airplanes at this point. And so as you take a look at shares of Boeing, keep in mind that this is Production return is is just a small part of getting the company uh, back, the commercial business back. Take a look at all the aerospace suppliers, guys. They're moving higher on this news, and for good reason. People are saying, when will Boeing and Airbus finally get production moving again?
Phil, I'll ask you to reflect on a couple of things in the auto business. Uh, well, three things, really. One is uh, this Ford News, the Q1 profit guide uh, for looking at a $2 billion loss. Tesla yeah. up nine days in a row. And then uh, Eurozone auto registrations down 52 uh, in March. What do we make of this conflicting range of stories? Um, well, let's start first off with Ford, and it also somewhat ties into what we're, we're seeing out of Europe because Ford's sales obviously under pressure over there. Not a surprise on Ford. Remember, they did a pre-announcement, if you will, a week ago, I believe it was, and at the time they pretty much said, look, the first quarter is going to be a mess. Um, so the $2 billion loss, I don't think that is uh, coming as any surprise to anyone. Europe, that's what we expected in terms of registrations, uh, going to be down anywhere between 50 and 60%. And in terms of Tesla, look, there's optimism that Tesla, because of its plant in China, Carl, will be able to come out of this coronavirus downturn, if you will, in terms of global auto demand and be in pretty decent shape in China. If you buy into that, you buy into the Tesla rally right now. Yeah, it's been remarkable to watch. Uh, a lot of stuff on your beat, uh, Phil. We'll come back to you later on, uh, our Phil Lebeau in Chicago. Take a quick break here as we get set for the opening bell in uh, just about 10 minutes. Don't go away. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Futures are strong here, really reflecting three major stories. This report, anecdotal as it is, on Remdesivir, uh, Boeing's attempts to reopen uh, at the beginning of the month, and the guidelines from the White House for states to reopen. We'll see how the opening bell looks uh, in just a few moments. Don't go away. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street as we get you ready for an opening bell on the last trading session of this week. With the S&P poised to uh, rise significantly, we may be down as little as 12% on the year when we see the open this morning. But Carl, it was interesting when you asked Phil about Tesla. I, of course, took a quick look at the market cap of that company, which is up 78 percent this year. And despite the fact that the S&P is only down 12 percent, we do have a lot of stocks that have been far more uh, dislocated than that. Tesla's market cap, though, given that rise, about one hundred and thirty eight billion dollars always helps to put it in perspective. Forget the forget the comparisons to Ford or GM. Tesla is very close in market cap now to Chevron, which I think does put it in some perspective in terms of the damage that's been done to some of these companies. Chevron, $149 billion. Tesla, about $138 billion. By the way, with WTI poised to, to begin, well, to, to be down over 7% this morning, Carl, we may want to keep a closer eye once again on some of those energy companies. 
Yeah, uh, we're going to, uh, Brian Sullivan's been making the point uh, internally that we do have a May expiration coming up, so you might want to look at some of the out months uh, more than you would ordinarily, but below 18 obviously uh, gets everyone's attention. You know, I saw that uh, earlier in the week, uh, Sarah, we had another price target on Tesla, 846. So the street really hasn't turned on it, um, although we'll get to Goldman's call on Apple, uh, which at 233 target is calling for a much deeper reduction in iPhone demand uh, for the current quarter than uh, the street does expect. Yeah, uh, certainly. And I was, I was just actually looking at, to, you know, to the point about Apple and to the Tesla point. Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook continue to make up they're like such a big concentration in the S&P 500 and in terms of the gains as well. It also speaks to the Nasdaq outperformance so far this week. And I think Jim Cramer has been making the point all week long that it's, it's the big stocks that are thought to be fine through this crisis and, and will do OK, potentially even better, like an Amazon, this crisis that continue to work for investors. Guys, I also just want to hit P&G because the consumer giant reported earnings this morning. Sales growth, very strong, the best in a decade. That was expected, 6% organic revenue growth. And it speaks to what P&G makes. Charmin toilet paper, Bounty paper towel, Vicks vapor rub, Crest toothpaste. This is what Americans and also others around the world have been stocking up on. And that drove the results, even with some weakness in other parts of the business, like beauty and like grooming, which we don't stock up on as much during this pandemic. I was really paying attention closely to what P&G said about China. The business got hit very hard during the quarter, obviously, with China closed. But, but here's what uh, the CEO and the executives were saying just now on the call about the reopening. Listen. Through the incredible efforts of our organization, we did much better than we were expecting in Greater China, down only 8%, excluding travel retail. We saw a strong lift in our categories in e-commerce to make up a portion of sales lost in closed physical stores. We quickly restored production capability, built share as a result, and are now operating at very close to full strength. Operating very close to full strength. It is a similar message we've heard from other multinationals operating in China. One potential disappointment that the strong dollar continues to hurt this company, which gets most of its sales outside of the United States. It chips into those earnings and we've seen the dollar uh, reach very high levels. So that's been a little bit painful. And also, as far as the forecast, they kept overall guidance, but did decrease the organic revenue growth. And I think one question investors have, Carl and David, is how does P&G do during a recession? On one hand, it's a staple, and that should make it bode well, as we saw in the results today. People need their basics, and they're stocking up more than ever. But on the other hand, they have very premium products and premium brands. So if there is a lot of economic pain out there, job losses, income declines, can those brands remain resilient? Are people going to be willing to pay up a little more than, say, uh, you know, just a generic brand? for their basics, their toothpaste, and their staples. So far, so good at P&G. We'll, we'll see if that continues to last. The reason the stock's not moving much, David, is because this has been one of the outperformers on the market. It's barely down for the year. It's barely down yeah. over the last three months during the market turmoil. The company raised its dividend in a sign of strength and a sign that it is doing a lot better than most other companies out there right now. Yeah, uh, as you point out, stock up uh, for the year, 
14 plus percent over the last 12 months as we get ready for an opening bell here, Sarah. Also questions about is it sustainable, these behavioral changes or not? Will people continue to simply buy more cleaning products even after the virus uh, leaves us, which of course we hope is as soon as possible. There you hear the opening bell this morning, Carl, uh, as we get ready for trading on what has been an eventful week. It feels like weeks ago that we heard from the banks, of course, which have been such a poor performer this week based on those earnings, but everything seems to be turning green at least this morning on hopes perhaps for the drug that we've discussed from Gilead, the reopening plan that we got uh, yesterday from the federal government, giving a lot of that um, that responsibility to the states, Carl, as they plan individually when to open and how to hit their various phases, ones, two, and three. Yeah, and we'll talk to the labor secretary in a little bit about exactly that and uh, the president reportedly telling uh, governors that they will call the shots. David, you mentioned earnings. Next week's uh, uh, universe of earnings is going to get a little more interesting as we get Coke and IBM and Netflix and Chipotle. But the credit card companies, David, are going to be interesting. We'll get Amex. We'll get Discover. Uh, we'll get Synchrony. And, and we'll see if those reserves have any kind of different characteristics from uh, the companies that actually uh, work the credit card business. Yeah, we may have gotten a bit of a preview when we saw, of source Wells Fargo or Bank of America, City, given their significance, certainly Bank of America and City, their significant presence in credit cards as well, Carl. But yeah, you're right. That's a, that's a key barometer in terms of what we're seeing from the consumer at this point. And remember, it's fairly early on, uh, even though we've gotten these enormous, what, 22 million people have applied for unemployment benefits over the last few, number of weeks. But uh, Carl, it may still be somewhat early. They're going to try and anticipate what their roles are going to look like. Uh, and what their bad debt situation is going to look like at those important barometers for consumer spending in the economy. Yeah, you got, we keep, Sarah, we uh, keep mentioning, you know, um, mm -hmm. where households are going to be likely to trim expenses uh, down the road. In a couple of months, you, you talk about premium products at uh, Procter. Today, Benchmark, uh, a firm we don't talk about a lot, uh, does cut Netflix to sell. Uh, they cite surveys suggesting that streaming services are among the first household budget items to be cut. Oppenheimer uh, does cut our own parent, uh, Comcast, to market perform today, Sarah, uh, saying that uh, our, our leverage, our exposure to legacy content is among the highest in the universe. And speaking of looking out into the future on consumer spending, Jeffrey's upgraded TJX, which I thought was interesting because all the retailers are in a world of pain, especially ones like TJX, which don't have a huge online business. But Jeffrey says best offense is defense upgrade to buy. They, they, they like the secular share gaining that TJ Maxx has had over the years versus, say, department stores, which are going to be hurting. And they say they should be TJ Maxx should be and Marshall should be a winner as the department stores continue to hurt even after and flounder even after this uh, pandemic, that they say that the COVID-19 should drive more rapid adoption of the off-price model internationally. So in other words, the price points on the merchandise, which is lower than, say, your usual department store or other brands, will actually help in a world where we emerge you know, from, from COVID-19, the path forward, as we're calling it here in CNBC. Guys, we continue to have a lot of companies, of course, trying to raise money. Those that are in particularly uh, vulnerable areas. Uh, I think they mentioned earlier AMC, which uh, the theater company we've been watching closely uh, on Squawk Box. I think Becky mentioned it. They are uh, they filed to offer 
$500 million in first lien notes. That is having a positive impact on the equity price right now. Of course, the market cap of the company is far below the $500 million that they are looking to raise. Again, first lien would give whomever buys these notes, and we don't know what the coupon on them conceivably would be, uh, the right, obviously, to be very high up in the uh, chain in terms of bankruptcy, if in fact that were to happen. That's not a word that has been foreign to AMC. We've also got Nordstrom in retail, of course, as you might have mentioned, might imagine under significant pressure, but it is doing what is called significant liquidity measures, suspending its dividend, announcing the amendment of an $800 million revolving revolving line of credit. And it did close on a a debt offering of 600 million, eight and three quarter percent is the coupon there saying this will add flexibility and liquidity uh, for the company at this point. They do. They did exit last year with 850 million in cash. They did draw down 800 million on the revolving line of credit. And of course, they do have that 600 million coming in from that uh, debt offering. Uh, Shake Shack says they'll hit the market from time to time uh, up to 75 million just in terms of stock, raising stock. Uh, uh, or I should say at market equity program is what they call it, but selling stock to raise money, but only 75 million there. And then, Sarah, I'm also watching these crazy moves in some of the mall operators. Yesterday, Simon Property Group Mm. got crushed. Today, it is up a great deal. Same as Mace Rich and some of these others, as people try to understand what these retailers and their perhaps failure to pay rent is going to mean for the mall operators for so many of the securities that back up, some of the debt there. But the move in the stock prices has just been dramatic day to day. Well, there was a report yesterday that Neiman Marcus failed to, to make a rent payment. And, and I think that was a reminder that that's what's happening out there as traffic goes to zero and these stores close. And, and longer term questions, James Gorman, CEO of Morgan Stanley yesterday, talking about whether they need all of that expensive commercial real estate, whether it changes the business model with so many people at so many of these financial institutions and other institutions working from home and doing it effectively and relatively smoothly. And that's been a continued theme here uh, in the function of financial markets as well. And then as for the debt opening, I just wanted to, to say a lot of it does have to do with the Fed. Yes, you know, com- the coupon rates are very high for a company like Carnival. But the fact that they are able to raise money, I do think part of it is the fact that the Federal Reserve has inter- intervened in a huge, unprecedented way into the corporate bond market for the first time and into below investment grade rating junk debt. You know, yep. it's something that will continue to be a discussion. I've seen a lot of Fed criticism starting to heat up out there. We talked to Philly Fed President Patrick Harker yesterday on Closing Bell, asked him, you know, whether, you know, there's going to be a moral hazard here, whether they were rewarding companies that have taken on too much debt and risky behavior by buying their debt. And and they continue to say, you know, it's not their... it's not their fault that, you know, we're in this pandemic. That, that's sort of been the line that we get from both fiscal and monetary authorities, that nobody could have anticipated this. No one could have run their business for this. And a lot of these companies that they bought their debt only recently got downgraded to junk status because of what has happened with COVID-19. Uh, here's what else uh, President Harker of the Philly Fed said about the economy. Everybody likes letters, and I tried to use Greek letters, but I gave up. Uh, I think it really is more of a – we're going to hit a a period where it's going to be 
pretty bad, and we're, it's pretty bad right now, and your hearts go out to the people all across the country. And we will climb out of it. It's not going to be a sudden bounce back. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me that there are going to be certain industries like travel and tourism uh, and hospitality and so forth that will take some time to recover. Fed president, who's a voting member, by the way, Carl, on the shape of the recovery, which everyone's trying to figure out. Is it a V? Is it a W? Is it a U? Is it none of the above? And how he characterized it was really... He, one thing that was encouraging, I thought he said, Carl, was that a lot of the job losses we see, those millions of initial jobless claims, he says in his gut will come back quickly, like construction, for instance, when the economy opens up, which is why the opening up from, that President Trump laid out is so important and so positive for the market. But you know, travel, leisure, hospitality could take a lot longer. Uh, let's hope so, because the uh, cumulative claims in the last four weeks, guys, matches the workforce of 23 entire states, according to The Times this morning, uh, citing some BLS data, wow. which is just a stunning statistic. Uh, the White House, of course, as Sarah said, did unveil guidelines for a phased reopening of the economy yesterday. And joining us this morning from Washington, D.C., is the U.S. Labor Secretary, Eugene Scalia. Mr. Secretary, thanks for the time. Good to see you. Good to be with you. Uh, we've been talking about uh, the prospect of opening for, for several weeks, obviously. And, and part of the thinking has been... Areas where there's uh, dense gathering, movie theaters, churches, uh, sports venues, would come last. They're now in phase one. Can you talk about how, uh, the, how, what kind of thinking went behind that? Well, I, th this, as the president laid out yesterday, and as uh, Dr. Uh, <clears throat> Fauci and Dr. Birx did as well, is the product of very careful consideration uh, by uh, the medical advisors uh, to the president, uh, and uh, I think reflects a uh, thoughtful uh, and appropriately cautious approach, but one which recognizes that uh, some states uh, very soon, if not now, are in a position where they can uh, begin to reopen. Uh, with respect to the kind of public places that you're mentioning, uh, it's not going to be wide open right away. That, that's, that's phase three. Uh, but I think in consultation with the experts here, we're finding that we, uh, in a number of states, and they'll make those decisions themselves, but it looks like a number of states will begin to uh, begin this, this reopening soon. We need to continue to be disciplined about the guidance for public health that's laid out in this document. We have to be disciplined. But this is, this is a sign we're turning the corner uh, and there's light at the end of the tunnel. How much uh, did testing play in the creation of these guidelines? People are pointing to, say, Virginia uh, this morning. State has eight and a half million people. Uh, tests so far, 50,000. Uh, to what degree will testing be a true barometer of the degree to which they can reopen? Well, it's in the document itself. The, uh, the test results, symptoms and cases are uh, going to be a, uh, an important measure of whether uh, states and the judgment of the governors are a, ready to pass through uh, another gate. So that's, that's certainly something that's going to be looked at. But again, when I look at this from an economic perspective, I think the uh, uh, announcement yesterday is very good news. It shows a thoughtful, uh, measured approach, but one which uh, shows the way out of this. And we've heard, I think, already from some governors who feel that they're prepared to go there. And, uh, and, and <clears throat> you, you were talking a moment ago about the unemployment numbers that we released yesterday. Obviously, uh, the sacrifice that the American workers are making is, is tough and it's hard to see, but we're, we're seeing results, too. And so we're, we're grateful for the discipline. Uh, we realize there needs to be more. 
Uh, but but we're, we're seeing, again, uh, a, a way out of this, a way forward. And I think uh, that's a, a reason for optimism at this point. Uh, is there, um, you didn't really lay this out, but is there an expectation of which states you would imagine would be most aggressive here? I don't know if that's uh, part of the, the matrix uh, or whether or not you're really trying to leave that to governors, but you must have a sense politically of uh, which governors are really champing at the bit. Well, I don't, I don't think we're uh, looking for people to be uh, overly aggressive. I, I think one of the uh, important messages yesterday is that this is a, a, a thoughtful uh, data-driven, scientifically informed approach. And again, different governors can make different decisions. And I don't want to uh, uh, pre-announce that for them. But I, I believe that some governors already have begun to signal they think they're close uh, and can uh, enter into phase one. And, and they'll make those decisions and move forward. But I think it's, it's good news for the national economy as a whole that we, we have this roadmap now. And uh, it seems to be reflected in the stock market this morning. Secretary Scalia, it's Sarah Eisen. You know, there are so many Americans right now that are risking their lives to take care of critically ill patients in hospitals, to make sure we have groceries on our shelves, to make sure the streets are safe. What at the Department of Labor are you doing to protect them and make sure their employers follow the CDC guidelines and provide them with the necessary equipment that they need? Well, you know, Sarah, as you say, I mean, uh, this is a, a war of sorts. And, and the front line in this war is different than in the past. It includes uh, our healthcare workers who are doing amazing things right now and, and right, are, are making some sacrifices and, and, and taking some risks. Obviously, uh, getting equipment to them has been very important. It's something the president has moved on uh, very quickly. Uh, we at the Department of Labor have been working with the CDC uh, to make sure that uh, the right information, the right guidance is being provided to uh, to those companies uh, so that they can take care of their workers. Uh, we uh, at the department are also uh, receiving and, and looking into uh, complaints when we have them. And uh, something that I've certainly emphasized and will continue to emphasize is that uh, workers who have concerns have a right to raise them with their, uh, with their company. And if they feel they've been uh, discriminated against or retaliated because they raised health concerns, then we at the Labor Department want to know about that. Why, why have you not been more aggressive to publicize those complaints, to issue citations? A lot of people wondering why you're not using OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to do more to protect workers and why we're starting to see things like strikes and, and more publicity around Amazon work, warehouse workers and, and other sort of complaints by workers that they're not getting what they need. We are doing more. Uh, OSHA was putting out guidance uh, on uh, precautions to take in the workplace as early as January. I think January 22nd was the first time that they began putting out guidance. They've been uh, doing that regularly. They've also taken steps to help free up the supply of respirators to healthcare workers. Uh, they are receiving complaints. It's not OSHA's practice to announce complaints when they're received, but we're receiving them. We're looking into them. Uh, we are uh, contacting companies where there are concerns. We've seen some results. And uh, so they are very much uh, engaged now, and I'm in regular communication with them about the uh, steps that are being taken, both to uh, work with CDC to ensure worker safety and also to uh, protect their ability to step forward if they have concerns. Secretary Scalia, it's David Faber. Uh, given the unprecedented number who, of people who find themselves out of work, it's no surprise that states may be overwhelmed with phone calls and applications. Uh, many have turned to the federal government to say, hey, help us out on the administration of these benefits. Are you doing that or are you telling them it's your problem to deal with? 
we're working so closely with the states. Uh, when we look for, I think, bright spots, good news, and what the country is dealing with right now, one is certainly uh, all of the quick steps the president Congress took last month, three major pieces of legislation in three weeks, including that unprecedented uh, uh, unemployment insurance uh, payment was, that was put into the, uh, the CARES Act, $600 a week additional on top of what the states provide. Now, unemployment insurance is a state-run system, but we have a billion dollars that we are giving out to help them with those systems. Uh, uh, I think about two-thirds of the states are now making those payments, that additional $600, and we're in constant contact with them, even providing them extra resources to help them with their computer systems, which in some cases are decades old. old. We're working with them, giving them additional resources. We, we want to help them succeed. In, in getting these payments out to workers. Obviously, uh, something else that's been very important to us is the Paycheck Protection Program, which was another really uh, valuable part of the, the CARES Act. It kept workers on payroll. It kept small businesses uh, up. And sadly, uh, that's now out of funds. Uh, I, I'm sad uh, to, to hear that because I thought it was such a good thing for workers. But, uh, but unfortunately, the Democratic leadership is not allowing us to go forward right now with replenishing that program. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking of the Democratic leadership, I know as well you did get a letter from a number of senators yesterday uh, saying that the Labor Department's guidance for dispersing the jobless benefits, quotes, appears narrow or ambiguous, which could make states think they need to exclude workers who Congress clearly intended to receive unemployment compensation through the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. Are you working to clarify any of this guidance, perhaps, that may be ambiguous, at least according to a number of senators? Uh, we put out uh, all the essential guidance the states needed to implement these unemployment programs uh, within about eight days, nine days of the CARES Act being passed. So we moved very quickly and, uh, and actually uh, expanded what Congress did. You know, uh, the CARES Act, as was passed by Congress, uh, didn't, uh, by its terms, extend unemployment benefits to an Uber driver who uh, was not able to uh, serve customers because of a shut down uh, by, the, uh, by the city or the state or, or just because the customers weren't there. But uh, I had authority in the statute, which I used to make clear that benefits could be available there too. That's, a number, uh, that's one of a number of points that uh, we'll clarify to those senators. I've been in touch with them. And I think we have a, actually a very good story to tell about how closely and quickly we've been working with the states to help them deal with uh, this new program, an important program, and also a, a really high volume of claims that they're experiencing right now. Finally, Mr. Secretary, you, you mentioned Uber. We've had some um, investors come on our air recently and complain about uh, gig economy companies like Uber, who, because they kept employees as independent contractors, never paid into the unemployment pool. And as a result, we are now all paying for those drivers uh, who are trying to collect claims. Uh, is the are, are both political parties going to take a hard look at that in the, uh, in the day, years to come? Well, as I said, uh, the uh, gig economy workers, independent contractors are covered by the uh, unemployment benefit program that was established by the president and Congress in the CARES Act. They are uh, also entitled to that $600 a week unemployment compensation payment, which is, uh, which is a generous one, uh, much larger than most states pay but which the president thought was important to uh, make Americans whole who are uh, making such a sacrifice as we uh, try to beat back the virus. 
Mr. Secretary, thank you. Uh, Eugene Scalia uh, talking about uh, uh, the labor market, obviously thank a you. key concern uh, for the markets right now. Thank you. Let's get to Rick Santelli this morning. Hey, Rick. Hi, Carl. Boy, lots of strange activity, as everybody knows, going on in the Treasury market, the sovereign debt market of the United States of America. Look at a two-day of tens. Boy, did we jump overnight. Now, we could debate what it is. Many think, obviously, it's related to potential drugs that are going to combat the coronavirus. Others think it's the whole notion of the phase-in, maybe changing the dynamic. I think it's probably a little of both. But what you should look at on that chart, yes, it gapped higher, but it, then it sinks back down again. As a matter of fact, look at a one-week of 10-year, how it pops, and then, of course, it seems to sink back down again. And as we sit at 60 basis points right now, we're down three on the day. We're down a dozen on the week. Now, let's pair up 10-year with the S&P 500. And I think we get some clues here. You know, followed us all the way down, but look at the major divergence. You know what many see in that divergence? That if you're an investor from a global standpoint, or even domestic, you're buying the equities and you're buying them because of the momentum, whatever reason, the drug, the phase-in, but you're also buying tenure. You're buying both. Why? Maybe it's a hedge that if the equities go sour, you have that fixed income. But many still believe that tenure is considered a safe haven. And whether it's domestic or global, that demand's going to increase. And when you think about the global dimensions of other central banks and other economies and the percentages of other equity markets and some of the biggest developed economies think Germany, the DAX, the CAC, it's just, well, America's the place to be. So it isn't necessarily all a negative signal that the 10 years don't see anything good with regard to the reason stocks are moving. And finally, let's look at one week of the dollar index. The dollar index right now is up about a third of a cent on the week. You see that one week chart, it keeps coming back. Much of this is still the pain of emerging markets and dollar demand. But no matter how you slice it, whether good or bad, the demand is resilient and it continues on the dollar. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Uh, markets are holding some gains. We got within a point of the S&P's 50-day, which is 28.62. If we get there uh, above it again, that'll be the first time since February 21. We're back in a moment. Dow's going to try to close above 24K for the first time since March 10th. In the meantime, some of the gainers week to date include AMD and obviously Amazon, whose strength has been well documented. We're back after a short break. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. A quick foray into the land of mergers and acquisitions, not because we have new deals, but we continue to have deals that close. In fact, some deals that close that you could imagine the buyers are very sorry that they couldn't figure out a way to get out. I referenced that in, uh, in, in re relation to Tallgrass Energy. This is a company uh, that was already 44% owned by Blackstone and other partners, Blackstone's Infrastructure Partners Fund. Um, and in December, they agreed to buy the remainder for $22.45 a share. Well, it doesn't take much to tell you it's an energy company, energy-related, midstream, uh, and that its value is nowhere near $22.45 were it not in a deal to be acquired. Tries it might have, and I don't know that it did specifically. One would imagine certainly Blackstone might have tried to figure out a way out or to reduce the price. They didn't. They closed the deal. The vote was yesterday. The deal closed this morning. And uh, Sarah and Carl, it does go to how tight these contracts are. Three billion in equity from Blackstone and its partners and additional debt goes into buying what they didn't already own. And believe me, it was not worth anywhere near what they're paying for that three uh, for that uh, for that stake right now. Sarah, over to you. 
just want to update you on some comments coming out of the uh, PNG conference call, which is going on right now. Always a good sort of economic bellwether. The, the company did exceptionally well over the quarter as people stocked up on home products like toilet paper and paper towel and toothpaste. John Mueller, the CFO, saying we're assuming it's already here, talking about a recession and will be here for some period of time. He says, while we're not immune, their strategy of basically staying in staples over discretionary items and increasing the value over the last few years should make them uh, relatively, not recession-proof, he says, but should help. Also want to hit the Chinese economy. We did get that quarterly GDP number out, which was worse than expected. Our Eunice Yoon has a breakdown on just how the economy looked during the COVID-19 pandemic that it experienced. Eunice. Thanks so much, Sarah. And it didn't look very good at all. China's GDP for the first quarter contracted by 6.8 percent. And to get a sense of the momentum, a lot of the focus today was on the March data. So industrial output uh, was the silver lining because it was only down by 1.1 percent. Tax and credit relief for manufacturers seemed to help there. Retail sales, though, dropped by 16 percent. And the breakdown shows that people did not want to go out to dine or to go shopping. Restaurants and and catering dropped by half in terms of sales. And people held back on shopping for cars, appliances, as well as for clothing. Now, the National Bureau of Statistics uh, said that the big risk going forward is a deterioration of global demand as infections overseas surged. However, a lot of analysts are concerned about the potential spending power here in China. There's a lot of emphasis on the unemployment rate, which came in at 5.9 percent. Even though it was a little bit lower than February, it's still elevated in a Chinese context. And in fact, J.P. Morgan said today that the numbers missed two important parts, how people aren't looking for work or are underemployed. Urban disposable income, this was also an interesting number because it was the worst on record and rural income also fell. So the overall uncertainty now here over jobs and of income is likely to continue to weigh on consumption. And of course, that doesn't bode very well for future growth. Guys, you've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft and performance with Acura's all electric ZDX with a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313 mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower. The ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.